The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the show. Imagine you're a great admirer of boats. You love them. Small, large, expensive, humble, it doesn't matter. You just love them. Everything from a balsa wood, contiki raft, logs lashed together, to a five-masted, fully rigged tall ship. Such beauty and elegance, so much speed and power, such grace, such sturdy function and craftsmanship, and so many interesting stories. These ships can take you places, they can take you into new worlds, and they can test you. You can put yourself in the middle of an ocean, in the middle of nature, and see what the universe has in store for you. Man versus man, man versus nature, man versus self. Those are the three main stories, aren't they? And they are all right there, available on that floating cosmos, your ship. I love ships. I keep thinking about ships when I think about today's author. Maybe because it's the 19th century in America that we're headed to, and specifically New England. It's the world of ships coming into port and leaving for Europe and Asia and Africa, all over, all over the world. The world of Herman Melville, headed out to sea, and Nathaniel Hawthorne, living in the port city of Salem, working in a custom house. And trips to and from England and Europe, vessels making the passage exchanging ideas and culture and new understandings. It's the Romantic period, or just after, and the minds of men and women seem to be expanding to new worlds. The railroads are having their impact on what it means to be living on a continent, but it's the ships crossing the globe, headed off to corners of Asia and Africa and South America, exchanging goods, exchanging ideas, seeking and learning, The ships are like books, in a sense, books that we climb aboard for a brief period, enjoying the voyage and profiting from the experience. Here are the ships available for our passage, Melville and Hawthorne, I've already mentioned, Mark Twain, Emily Dickinson, Louisa May Alcott is there, author of Little Women, Walt Whitman, Robert Frost, Wallace Stevenson, (laughs) sorry, Wallace Stevens, Henry David Thoreau. Some of the greatest minds, the greatest thinkers, the greatest poets and prose writers that America has ever had. And in looking at that list, you might forget about one writer who comes up again and again, Ralph Waldo Emerson. His ship is famous, everyone knows the name. Why do we not board his ship? It's a good question. Maybe you're thinking about that, you wander down to the pier, stand looking out at the horizon hand over your brow, squinting, watching the profiles of all those ships sailing in and out of the port. Where is the S.S. Emerson? Has too much time passed? Has the Emerson vessel been retired? Maybe it's in a museum now. Maybe it sprung a leak and now lives at the bottom of the sea. Maybe it's been chopped up for scrap. So you finally decide to ask a sailor. You wander down to the dock and find a captain on his way to the alehouse, his year-long voyage complete. Let's call him Captain Melville. Captain, you say, did you ever encounter a vessel called Emerson? 
Ever see the Ralph Waldo Emerson out there on your journey? And the captain smiles and says, I know what you're looking for, but you're not going to find it. But surely, you protest, surely you must have heard of it. Surely you must have seen the great craft, Ralph Waldo Emerson. It must be the biggest of ships. I'm sure of it. The history books tell me. 19th century American literature seems full of it, indispensable. He can't just be gone. Please don't tell me that the ship is capsized. Please don't tell me that the ship has gone under. And the sea captain chuckles. He pauses for a moment, studying your face, then looks out at the vast blue yonder he just left behind. Don't you see, lad, he says at last, Emerson is not a ship at all. Emerson is the ocean. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the inescapable American, the American philosopher, the American scholar, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the History of Literature. I'm your host, Jack Wilson. Very glad to be here with you today. This is a great subject, one that was not on my short list, but as some of you may recall, it is a special request. A special request from a fiancé. The two of them had a relationship, then they weren't together, then the podcast came about, this lowly little podcast, this little striver that helped to get them back together. And now they are engaged. And Angela emailed and said, how about an episode on Ralph Waldo Emerson? So here it is. Mazel tov. May your marriage be a long and happy one, full of good books and good thoughts and much laughter and shared understanding and growth. I'm excited for you both, and I wish you all the best. So, Ralph Waldo Emerson. I just tried to make it vivid with that metaphor, just how important he was. Other authors sailed their boats on his ideas. That's my point. He sustained them. He enriched them. He buoyed them up. How did he do it? And yet, He's not like them, and he's not like them for us. You don't climb aboard Emerson and expect to sail around the world just as you don't climb aboard the ocean. You might swim in it for a little bit, walk in knee-deep, <laughs> decide whether the temperature's right, go for a little swim now and then, or you might just stare at it for inspiration. You might appreciate its power and majesty and mystery and unfathomable depths. You might appreciate how it affects all the other authors, the ones who are still sailing their ship on his waves and tides. But he's different. There's no Moby Dick in his collected works, nothing like The Leaves of Grass. He didn't write a great novel or a great collection of poetry. How did his influence happen? What did it mean? How did it work? Now, you might think I've overstated this, But here's a quote by esteemed critic Harold Bloom, getting at some of the same idea that I've just set forth. Emerson, he wrote in 1984, is the mind of our climate, the principal source of the American difference in poetry, criticism, and pragmatic post-philosophy. Emerson, by no means the greatest American writer, 
is the inescapable theorist of all subsequent American writing. From his moment to ours, American authors either are in his tradition or else in a counter-tradition originating in opposition to him. Hmm. That was from his 1984 article in the New York Review of Books, Mr. America. The principal source of the American difference in poetry, criticism, and pragmatic post-philosophy. Who was Emerson? What did he think? What works did he produce? What did it mean for his contemporaries and the generations to follow? We'll explore all that today. But first, let's catch up on some emails. Subject, your interview with Vu Tran. Well, Mr. Wilson, (laughs) that's how it begins. Well, Mr. Wilson, thanks to you, my to-read pile keeps growing. Oh, this is good. This, readers, is list readers. This, listeners, is my purpose in the universe to get your two read piles to keep growing and growing. And hopefully, you can shrink them a little bit too by actually reading some books. Ah, goes on. I just listened to your interview with Vu Tran. I think it's not too new. My podcasts are out of order. Yes, that's true. Emailer. Can I just say, I get more emails about Vu Tran than just about anybody else. He should probably have his own show. So popular. But he's busy writing and teaching. So I'll try to have him back on the podcast soon. Everyone loves Vu Tran. Email goes on. I just listened to your interview with Vu Tran where he talks about four books that he loved. It was immensely entertaining. Based on his recommendation, I picked up the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle by Haruki Murakami. And while I was at it, I got The Corrections by Jonathan Franzen. I remember you talking about him and Oprah during the Literary Feuds episode, and I remember when that started, but I've never read any of his books. I also added Professor Tran's book to my reading list. Well, that's good. I'd say you're two for three. (laughs) I'm not a Franzen fan, but most certainly uh, he is worth reading, I suppose. Mike is a big fan. Those of you who take Mike's recommendations... Most people do like his works. I suppose they're good. But Murakami and Tran, there you go. That's worth reading. Email continues, What I really have come to appreciate about your podcast is not only the reliving of my favorite classic novels, but also the recommendations for contemporary literary fiction that I get from you and your guests. I don't have a source for these recommendations, and my neighborhood book club tends to pick about one good book a year. <laughs> This is a problem with book clubs, isn't it? I've never been in a book club. I can't uh, I can't take the idea of reading for obligation. I don't have enough time anymore. I like being exposed to new books and, and people, certainly. I like people. But if I get two pages in and realize that the book is not for me, I have to set it aside. I don't think I could keep going. Maybe in the old days, when I was reading a book a day, could choke your way through a book, but now... I don't know. But I do think book clubs are awesome, and I love knowing that people go to book clubs and participate in book clubs. It's like church. I don't go myself, but it warms my heart to drive past a church parking lot full of cars on a Sunday, see people walking in and out, dressed up. It's nostalgia, I guess. Email continues. Oh, and I loved your bashing of the college board's list of novels that are to be read before college. Give me a break. 
Right now, the College Board has an absolute stranglehold on the entire high school curriculum in America. As a high school teacher and parent of a high school student, I was glad to hear you declare that you would not drink their Kool-Aid. That's strong. (laughs) Those are strong words. But a high school teacher is in a good position to know. Yes, that episode was also really popular. A lot of people object to that list and to the College Board's influence. You are not alone. Let's push back. Let's get some better books on there. Come on, College Board. Wake up. She says, thanks again for your amazing podcast. It makes me happy to hear that there are others out there that like the same things as I do. Warmly, Debbie. You're welcome, Debbie. Thank you for the email. I love hearing from people about what they're reading. And the feedback makes me feel very good. Very proud of what I'm doing here, I guess. (laughs) Glad that it's resonating with some of you. Okay. Here we go. Email number two. This one is amazing. Hang on to your hat. Well, (laughs) who's wearing a hat these days? Hang on to your head. Your Hatless head. Subject, random rambling about your podcast. Hello, Jack. First and foremost, I was on your website looking up your email address, and I found out you used to live in Bologna. That's marvelous. I am now writing from Bologna, where I also live. A nice connection to start off my email, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I do think. I do think that's a nice connection. Bologna might be my favorite city in the world. I have many dear friends there and such great memories of the studying I did at the University of Bologna. It's like this undiscovered medieval jewel. That's my advice to you listeners. Don't just go to Rome and Florence and Venice on your trip to Italy. Take a little time out for the less visited places. Some people find that in Parma, Assisi, Perugia, other small towns on the way, or not on the way. Bologna is a university city known for its food. It's right on the train line between Florence and Milan, and you can get a great feel for Italy there. You could do it as a day trip from Florence. I think the train's about 45 minutes. It's a medieval city. There's porticos. Beautiful. has a secret door secret window into something unexpected. I wrote about all this once. You could probably find it somewhere on the blog. But yes, it's a great connection. I wish I were there too. The email continues. I have listened to your podcast for a couple of weeks, and it has quickly become one of my favorite shows. Thank you. The episodes are so full of passion that your love for literature is overwhelming. (laughs) When you talk about authors I don't particularly like, I feel like I love them too. That's great. (laughs) Thank you again. So, ah, this is the email. So, a shared city and many compliments. That would be it if I hadn't just listened to the Emma Bovary episode. And (laughs) when I I read this in an email, I kind of know where it's headed. That Madame Bovary episode, oh boy, did that one ever have legs. (laughs) That would be it if I hadn't just listened to the Emma Bovary episode and told a couple of friends about your trip to Asia, how you found out you were in love with your friend in Morocco, flew to her, and eventually married her. Quick note, I was listening while working in my office, and I found myself weeping in front of my co-workers when you said, listener, 
I married her. Oh. <laughs> Weeping is in all caps. This is such a funny email. It's so incredible. Weeping. <laughs> I find it hard not to smile when I read this email. Weeping right there at work. I'm so touched by this. Can I tell you? The email goes on. What do you think those scoundrels had to say? <laughs> they said, Gloria, he made that up. They said, it's too romantic to be true. Jack, don't let me down. Did you really make that up? Even if you did, please say you didn't. It's such a beautiful story. It must be true. I look forward to hearing from you if you find the time. Have a nice evening, Gloria. P.S. Please excuse my poor English. P.P.S. I love your Shakespeare, but I would be overjoyed if you decided to discuss some Marlowe. Just saying. Smiley face. Okay. First of all, this email is fantastic. Find the time. Of course I'll find the time. <laughs> How could I not respond to the weeping listener? And then Marlowe? Oh, yes. That has to be an episode. Doesn't it? Marlowe is one of the great shadowy characters in literature. A comet. Literature's comet. And a genius. He almost took over the episode we did on Faust. And he almost took over the one we did on conspiracy theories. And the ones we do on Shakespeare. And the one on Daniel Defoe. He needs his own episode. Christopher Marlowe goes on the list. So let's address these scoundrels that you work with. <laughs> That's so funny. I worked with a few scoundrels myself. They never believe the best stories. They're so practical, so rational. So who cares what they think? Does it matter if I made up the story, Gloria? They have no imagination, no sense of romance, no longing for the beautiful. They prefer truth to beauty even at the expense of feeling something genuine, something that's more real than the truth. We don't need literal truth, do we, Gloria? Can't we enjoy fiction just as much, even if it isn't true, even if I made all that up? But tell those scoundrels to go jump in the Po River, because, yes, it's true. It's all true. <laughs> there we go. You know, I make up a lot of stuff on the show. A lot of it's just me thinking, dreaming, inventing. Emerson's not really an ocean, of course, not literally. But that episode, the Madame Bovary episode, where I talked about my journey from Tibet to Nepal and all the way to Morocco to meet up with my beloved, who was right there with me when I got your email, by the way, and who laughed along with me as we remembered our origin story now so buried under all the stresses and years and years of parenting and working and other obligations. She was there in Morocco. She's here with me now. And it's all true, Gloria. Enjoy the story. I'm glad you find it beautiful. And tell those scoundrels. It is true. Okay, let's take a little music break and jump into Emerson. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure 
every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. tempted to start with some quotes. Emerson as a philosopher is a little like Nietzsche in one way, and maybe only one way. He's an aphoristic writer. You can pull sayings out of his works and get a pretty good sense of what he was about. Reading the works themselves, and by that I'm referring to his essays, it's not always the most pleasant of experiences. We'll talk about that, and we'll talk about who he was. But let's just start with some quotations. Quote, To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. Here's another. For every minute you are angry, you lose 60 seconds of happiness. And, Finish each day and be done with it. You have done what you could. Some blunders and absurdities no doubt crept in. Forget them as soon as you can. Tomorrow is a new day. You shall begin it serenely and with too high a spirit to be encumbered with your old nonsense. These are popular quotes. These are the sort of self-help version of Emerson. Look inward. Cultivate your mind. Be in touch with yourself and what you are thinking. Don't waste time. Live life to its fullest. Be you. That's this Emerson. Here's another. Always do what you are afraid to do. What lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. You can see what I mean by self-help, right? This is advice, wisdom. Here's how you can be a better person. Here's how you can be your best self. Life is short. Make the most of it. Seize the day. We're already getting at Whitman here. Boy, it is impossible to imagine Whitman without Emerson. Who does this quote remind you of? Quote, Do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Maybe Frost. Maybe. Although Frost complicated that a bit. As we saw in our episode with Professor Bill. It's a jumping off point. But listen to how these ring. Always do what you are afraid to do. That's very well written. 
Every word sounds like a bell. He was a famous lecturer, known for his deep voice and his energy and his ability to deliver weighty topics without condescending to his audience. Egalitarian, that's how he was described. He made his living as a lecturer, very popular, traveling around New England, lecturing in front of big crowds. When you read his writings, they tend to get a little long, a little dry, a little tedious. They aren't particularly funny. They aren't spiced with anecdotes. They're like a brain, his brain, considering a topic, digging into it, exploring what it means. It's like Montaigne crossed with Spinoza in 19th century America. You might wish for a little more of Montaigne's self-awareness, his character, his persona. It's funny not to call Emerson self-aware because he was very self-aware, but he isn't a strong persona in his work. Entire essays go by where you only see him as a thinker, maybe with a word or two about friendship. Sometimes things flash into into the light, but they disappear. Then there's a kind of folksy Emerson. Here's another quote. It is one of the blessings of old friends that you can afford to be stupid with them. That gives us a little insight into Emerson, the person. You can kind of picture him enjoying being stupid with his old friends. We know he's a person. It's not like he's erased himself completely, but it's also not like Montaigne or Thoreau, where you get a strong sense of the figure, the speaker, the author, where you see his little foibles, his quirks of his everyday life, his day-to-day struggles. What you see is someone who absorbs a lot of Plato and who wrestles with what it means to be an American intellectual coming out of Europe's shadow and what a new American scholar would look like and what it means to be self-reliant and whether Jesus was God. His view, by the way, was that Jesus was a great man, but not God. But I don't think the quotes I've chosen thus far really give you a sense of who he was. Yes, he had this homespun wisdom kind of quotes. They're useful, they're popular, but he's also much richer than that, much deeper. That's why he's so popular, so influential with other authors, because of the way he digs, or should I say dives, our ocean again. He goes deep and emerges with something glinting in his hand, something that the earth or the sea has spent thousands of years polishing into something smooth and shiny, and Emerson emerges to describe it for us. That's what he's like. But that's a little abstract. So let's back off from that and ground ourselves by walking through his actual life and then talking more about his work. Ralph Waldo Emerson was born in 1803, In Boston, Massachusetts, the fourth son of a Unitarian minister, and his grandfather had been a minister, in fact, there's something about that in his blood, the oratory ability, the thoughtful lecture slash sermon. His father called him a rather dull scholar. This is sad, and it's especially sad when you learn that his father died when Ralph was only eight years old. A rather dull scholar. His father's mind was made up. Well, fortunately, his judgment didn't hold. Ralph ended up doing very well as a scholar. At 14, he went to Harvard, putting himself through college by combining a scholarship with work as a tutor and a job waiting on tables. Why does that matter? It's tempting to see him as a wealthy patrician figure, I suppose, someone with a lot of leisure time. But he was more engaged in the world 
than that. He worked for a living. After college, he became a schoolmaster in his brother's school for young ladies, and then he went back to divinity school. Now, these were very eventful years for Emerson. He graduated from divinity school in 1829. He got married to a young woman. She was 18 years old. And two years later, and not even not even two years later, actually, she died of tuberculosis. How sad is that? It affected Emerson, of course, affected him powerfully. And then he resigned as a minister over a dispute with the church leaders in 1831. And in 1832, he sailed to Europe, where he went on a kind of famous author tour, meeting Wordsworth and Coleridge and John Stuart Mill and Thomas Carlyle, who became his lifelong friend. And here, in the wake of tragedy, a free man, but a grieving one, stripped of his marriage by tragedy, stripped of his profession by disagreement with authority, open to the world at large, an American viewing the European continent for the first time. Travel always works that way, doesn't it? It tells you about your home as much as the place you're visiting, and it's great for letting you see yourself in a new light. This was where the ideas for Emerson started to take hold. The ideas of the universe and our place in it, the sense of self, the self-examination, and what eventually became known as transcendentalism began to take root. Emerson is the supreme figure of transcendentalism. There are many others in the movement, but he is the prime mover. Transcendentalism roughly arose in reaction to the religious and intellectual climate of the age, the era of Calvinism and the legacy of Puritanism. The idea that reigned was that humans were essentially depraved, destiny was fixed, there was not much you could do. Transcendentalism took its cues from Romanticism, both in England and Germany, along with biblical criticism and the skepticism of David Hume. Throw in a little Immanuel Kant and some Swedenborg, along with new translations of Hindu texts on the philosophy of the mind and spirituality. And you can see where Emerson and his fellow transcendentalists like Henry David Thoreau and Bronson Alcott and Margaret Fuller, those are just three of the most well-known today. There were others. You can see where they were drawing their ideas from. People aren't depraved and doomed, they said. People, said the transcendentalists, are inherently good. Nature is too. Society and its institutions might be getting in the way of this. They might be preventing the essential good from blossoming. Or they might be corrupting what's good. I think the world is depraved and doomed. Maybe that's because of the individuals getting tamped down by society and its old oppressive institutions. So what do you do? Go back to yourself. Become independent. Become self-reliant. You can see Emerson doing this in his life. We're looking at his life and finding that the decisions he made to quit the church, for example, had strong philosophical underpinnings. And you can see transcendentalism in his writing. Subjective intuition is favored over objective knowledge or the acquisition of knowledge. The mind of the perceiver 
is as interesting as, it must be examined every bit as much as the perceived thing. In history, the prior work of one's predecessors need not necessarily be followed. You don't need to bow down to the past, to the civilization that's been handed to you or forced upon you, to the culture. It's possible to be new and free and inspired and deep right here in America. That's another theme you can see in Emerson. America isn't Europe's distant cousin, the hick living out in the sticks, always trying to be as good as Europe. America is new and fresh, a new continent there to be explored, and the minds of the people living there are new and fresh too, and they're worth exploring. And the philosophy says, don't worry about that. Don't tamp that down. Don't think that that that's somehow inferior because it's not. In fact, it's better. It has a better chance of casting off those institutions, all those people, the church, the society, the authority figures telling you how you must think, telling you that all the answers are theirs to dole out and yours to beg for and receive with gratitude. It's better to free yourself from that mentality and become who you can be. Past masters, who cares? Take what you can from yourself, from your own education, from your own thinking, from your own experience in the world. View the universe as you see it. And that includes the universe within. So Emerson spent decades writing these lectures and traveling around New England, becoming independent and self-reliant himself. He was extremely popular and made a good living. We have those lectures now and we can read them. There are probably about 10 that everyone should read. Maybe start with five, then go on to 10. (laughs) They're not a breezy read. Take them in small doses because you'll want to think hard about what he's saying. And they're so compact. They give you a lot to think about. They make you think. One suspects that people came away from the lectures a little staggered by what they heard. The density of the thought, the comprehensiveness, the keenness of insight. But they came away also inspired. Even though... These lectures are packed with learning, with scholarship, as Emerson clearly wrestles with thoughts. They're on a very elevated intellectual plane. I don't mean they're dense in the Kant sense. He's not inventing a whole new vocabulary to use. He's not weighing things down with logic and then logic following upon logic and until you're adrift in what he is trying to say. They're easy to understand. They're just, uh, they're pecked tight. Let's put it that way. But the fundamental thrust of them is not so much, here's what you should know, but here's what you should do. Here's why it's important for you to go think thoughts and go unlock these truths for yourself. Go find what it means to be alive, to be a person with a mind living in this Beautiful universe. That's a pretty good summary of what I take from Emerson. Go find what it means to be alive, to be a person with a mind living in this beautiful goddamn universe. (laughs) Here's a quote of his that I love. Live in the sunshine, swim the sea, drink the wild air. Hmm. Doesn't that make you want to get outside? Where? Here's another one. What you do 
speak so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. And then there's this one. The earth laughs in flowers. The earth laughs in flowers. That's so good. That's so, so beautiful. The earth laughs in flowers. Try to remember that the next time when you're out there going for a walk. The earth laughs in flowers. It will reorient you. So, read the handful of essays and then keep going if you want. Emerson is worth reading in context as well as just by way of these quotes. It's worth reading the whole essay. The most famous essays are easily available. Self-Reliance, The American Scholar, Nature, Experience, and The Poet. That's my pick for your five. Maybe read The Oversoul and Circles. And maybe maybe just take a look at the table of contents and dip into the subjects that interest you. Here's some titles. Friendship, History, Art, or the authors that he considered Shakespeare, Plato, Goethe. Find what you need. Find what interests you. Plumb the depths of Emerson and emerge with your own shiny bauble. And then... What after that? What about what after that? After you've done the reading, think about his life. Think about his many sayings, his wisdom, his advice. Trust thyself, he said. There's a two-word distillation. Trust thyself. And notice and admire the influence that he had. He and Hawthorne used to go for long walks around Concord together, discussing ideas. Nathaniel Hawthorne. Walt Whitman was practically an intellectual disciple Emerson and Whitman, that is an interesting case. Here's Emerson describing what an American poet should do in his 1844 essay, The Poet. Emerson writes, quote, I look in vain for the poet whom I describe. We do not, with sufficient plainness or sufficient profoundness, address ourselves to life, nor dare we chant our own times and social circumstance. If we filled the day with bravery, we should not shrink from celebrating it. Time and nature yield us many gifts, but not yet the timely man, the new religion, the reconciler whom all things await. Dante's praise is that he dared to write his autobiography in colossal cipher or into universality. We have yet had no genius in America with tyrannous eye who knew the value of our incomparable materials and saw in the barbarism and materialism of the times, another carnival of the same gods whose picture he so much admires in Homer. Then in the Middle Age, then to Calvinism. Banks and tariffs, the newspaper and caucus, Methodism and Unitarianism are flat and dull to dull people, but rest on the same foundations of wonder as the town of Troy and the temple of Delphos, and are as swiftly passing away. Our log-rolling, our stumps and their politics, our fisheries, our Negroes and Indians, our boats and our repudiations, the wrath of rogues, and the pusillanimity of honest men, the northern trade, the southern planting, the western clearing, Oregon and Texas, are yet unsung. Yet America is a poem in our eyes. Its ample geography dazzles the imagination, and it will not Wait long for meters. End quote. As anyone who has read Leaves of Grass knows, Walt Whitman 
took this to heart. It's practically a manifesto. It's practically Whitman's manifesto. And in Whitman's poetry, practically Emerson sampled. <laughs> Listen to these lines. Here's his 1855 poem, 11 years after the poet came out. I hear America singing. Right? You know this poem. Begins, I hear America singing the varied carols I hear, those of mechanics, each one singing his as it should be, blithe and strong. The carpenter singing his as he measures his plank or beam. The mason singing his as he makes ready for work or leaves off work. The boatman singing what belongs to him in his boat. The deckhand singing on the steamboat deck. The shoemaker singing as he sits on his bench. The hatter singing as he stands. The woodcutter's song. The plowboy's on his way in the morning or at noon intermission or at sundown. The delicious singing of the mother or of the young wife at work or of the girl sewing or washing. Each singing what belongs to him or her and to none else. The day what belongs to the day. At night the poetry of young fellows, robust, friendly, singing with open mouths their strong, melodious songs. That's Whitman. That's Whitman doing what Emerson has called upon the poet to do. More than just find strong meters and rhymes. America waits for no meter. Will not wait for meter. Cannot be contained in a a form like a sonnet. A rigid count the syllables form. Not just meter and rhyme. It spills over. Whitman takes that to heart. In the poet, the essay of the poet Emerson also states that good poetry is not solely a matter of technical prowess. Here's a little more on that. For it is not meters, but a meter-making argument that makes a poem, a thought so passionate and alive that like the spirit of a plant or an animal, it has an architecture of its own and adorns nature with a new thing. He says the poet speaks most adequately when he speaks somewhat wildly, not with the intellect. Emerson observes that a lifestyle on a key so low and plain is stimulant enough for poets, our liberating gods. Finally, at the end of the essay, Emerson laments the lack of poets writing about America. America is a poem in our eyes. Its ample geography dazzles the imagination. And it will not wait long for meters. Whitman says, here we go. I'll write a poem about America. I'll write a poem about America singing. 1855, he wrote Song of Myself. It's a very Emersonian title, idea for a title. It doesn't restrict itself to conventional meter. Here's how it begins. I celebrate myself and sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. I loaf and invite my soul. I lean and loaf at my case, observing a spear of summer grass. My tongue, every atom of my blood formed from this soil, this air, born here of parents, born here from parents the same and their parents the same. I, now 37 years old, in perfect health begin, hoping to see 
This is Heath. Hoping, sorry. Hoping to cease not till death. Creeds and schools in abeyance. Retiring back a while sufficed at what they are, but never forgotten. I harbor for good or bad. I permit to speak at every hazard. Nature without check with original energy. Whitman is famous for these lines, published in 1855. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then, I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. But once again, the echo here is of Emerson in 1841's essay, Self-Reliance. He writes, The other terror that scares us from self-trust is our consistency a reverence for our past act or word. But why should you keep your head over your shoulder? Why drag about this corpse of your memory lest you contradict somewhat? You have stated in this or that public place, suppose you should contradict yourself. What then? A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. With consistency, a great soul has simply nothing to do. He may as well concern himself with his shadow on the wall. Speak what you think now in hard words. And tomorrow speak what tomorrow thinks in hard words again, though it contradict everything you said today. Ah, so you shall be sure to be misunderstood. Is it so bad then to be misunderstood? Pythagoras was misunderstood, and Socrates, and Jesus, and Luther, and Copernicus, and... Galileo and Newton, and every pure and wise spirit that ever took flesh. To be great is to be misunderstood. End quote. It's like a call to action for someone like Whitman. A match to the powder keg that he was. Blew him up. (laughs) Oh. Do I contradict myself? Very well, then. I contradict myself. That's Whitman. We remember those lines. Do we forget the part in Emerson where he says, Suppose you should contradict yourself. What then? Gives him license to do it. Tells him it's important to do it if you're a poet. Just be you. Think your thoughts. Don't worry so much about these foolish consistencies, the hobgoblin of little minds. That might be the best Emerson phrase of all. That and the eyeball, I suspect. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Hmm. Whitman sent Emerson a copy of Leaves of Grass, and Emerson, who had to know that the poetry was what he himself had predicted, or maybe I should say called for, Emerson probably thought, oh boy, here's a guy who actually believed this. Here's a guy who, he's putting it into action, and it works. Must have been excited. Had to know that the poetry was was Emersonian. He wrote him a long letter in response, full of praise. Included the line, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. Which Whitman used. Kind of irritating. Emerson used it without permission, put it right on his frontispiece of the next edition of Leaves of Grass. I was simmering, Whitman said. I was simmering, simmering, simmering. Emerson, 
brought me to a boil. Melville went to see Emerson's lectures whenever he could. Emily Dickinson, another influence. Man, that influence is so profound. The thinking, the thoughts that you find in Emily Dickinson are so Emersonian that people initially thought that she was Emerson, that her poems had been written by Emerson under another name. Henry James Sr., the philosopher, theologian, was heavily influenced by him. And through that conduit, both William James, the philosopher of pragmatism, and Henry James, the novelist, were influenced as well. You can see Emerson's ideas running through all of them into Robert Frost, Wallace Stevens, other New England poets, but also other American poets from other places. Thoreau is in a special category, I suppose. If you say Emerson and, (laughs) if you were on Match Game and the game show where they're giving you, you have to fill in blanks, and they say Emerson and blank, Thoreau is probably the word that would win. I don't imagine that will come up on the Match Game, but I guess one never knows. Thoreau was a close friend of Emerson's. They spoke often. Thoreau was younger, started out as a protege. The two of them spoke often, and when Thoreau developed the plan to live on his own, which is a very Emersonian idea, sort of taking Emerson's beliefs to their outer reaches, and Thoreau built his cabin on Walden Pond, on 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 land that Emerson owned, and worked on projects that Emerson hired him to do during that period. Throughout his time there, Thoreau would meet Emerson for dinner and conversations. The two of them later, however, had a strained relationship. Why? What happened? Clearly, they were intellectually simpatico. It's a bit of a mystery. Why exactly? They both wrote about it, but nobody knows exactly what happened. There's a lot of speculation. They did reconcile. Now and then, both knew moments of grief, and they would reach out to each other and console one another, enduring illness. And then, after Thoreau died, Emerson delivered a beautiful funeral oration, a tribute to his old friend. But why was there this strain? There are a couple of theories. Both involve their initial relationship, the dynamic of it. Emerson as mentor to Thoreau. Emerson believed in him early, gave him access to his library, encouraged Thoreau to write a real mentor-protege relationship. Now, we know how these go, right? The protege eventually becomes an equal, has to cast aside the mentor in order to complete his growth, has to throw him over in order to achieve his own greatness. Mentors don't always like that, being thrown over, but this, this has a special context here, doesn't it? Isn't Emerson the high priest of self-reliance? Trust thyself. Go your own way. Dig in. Dig deep. Find what you can. Within. Don't take things from authority figures. There's some evidence that the problem here wasn't that Thoreau had to cast aside his mentor and the mentor was upset about it, but that Emerson was the one disappointed that Thoreau wasn't doing more casting aside 
He didn't want a protege forever. He wanted a colleague, an equal. That's that. He thought that's what was going to blossom. Somewhere along the way, the two of them felt disappointment and confusion and a sense of betrayal. Kind of a, a miscommunication of unexpressed thoughts. Other writers who didn't like Emerson included Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> Why am I laughing? That cracks me up. Of course, Poe's such an original and so surly and so perspicacious. It's no surprise that Poe saw things that others failed to see. Poe thought much of transcendentalism and the followers in particular was simply mysticism for mysticism's sake. He thought Emerson was derivative of Carlyle, and he objected to efforts later in life, for efforts by Emerson's fans to excuse him and to cover up what appeared to be Emerson's decline and his losses of memory, the onset of his dementia. It would be better to humanize him, not deify him, Poe said. But I think Poe probably saw something else, too. That the call for nonconformity was becoming a conformity. It's like what happened to rock and roll and social protest. What is rock and roll protesting against when everyone has been listening to it for 50 years, when it's dominated? What does it mean to wear long hair when everyone has long hair? There's a great John Lennon interview. I think I've talked about this before. Such a great story. John Lennon is being interviewed by Tom Schneider in the 70s. And Tom Schneider says, talking about the early Beatles, he says, well, how could anyone take you guys seriously with those silly haircuts? And John Lennon says, silly haircuts. They look kind of like yours does now. (laughs) It was true. Tom Schneider had shaggy hair, sideburns. It was basically a mop top. As long as a mop top. And he's sitting there saying, how could any of us take you seriously when you're, when you're wearing that silly haircut? What does that mean? A silly haircut. It means that it seemed silly in a world where everyone else had a crew cut. It was a sign of nonconformity. That's what seemed silly about it. We can't take you seriously. You don't know how to conform. And in a landscape of Restriction and obedience to institutions. The guy with the megaphone saying, people are good, nature is good, trust yourself, is a revelation. But if everyone says that, if every artist adopts the same view, then what do you have? Where does an artist find originality? Maybe the pendulum needs to swing in another direction. Maybe as we can imagine Poe thinking, maybe the pendulum needs to find its pit. Emerson didn't think much of Poe's writing either. Jingle Man, he called him. (laughs) I suppose he was talking about the Ravid or the Bells, those works of tintinabulation and so on. Jingle Man. I could maybe... (laughs) Maybe that's why Poe didn't like Emerson. I kind of hope that those reasons, the reasons I just gave, were the reasons why Poe didn't like Emerson, because there's another theory advanced, which I don't like as well. 
Emerson was a strong abolitionist, eventually an absolutist abolitionist. He supported the Civil War, and although he liked Lincoln and mourned him after his death, he was critical of Lincoln's stance. This is the Lincoln that's hard for us to fathom today, the one who said, if I could save the Union by abolishing slavery, I'd do it, and if I could save the Union by not abolishing slavery, I'd do that. The Union. Maybe that's the kind of decision that a president needs to make. Maybe it was easy for Emerson, lecturing, to call for abolition, no matter what happened to the Union. Get rid of slavery. Let's stamp that out. Let's take a stand here. Let's call it for what it is. Maybe. Maybe that's for the lecturer. But I know what side I'm on. So, some have speculated that Poe was among the writers in the South who resented Emerson for that. I don't know what the evidence is for it. I do know Robert Penn Warren loathed Emerson, and I think it was because of that, although I actually don't know what the evidence is for that either. I imagine it would be hard for some of these writers to untangle feelings from reality. It's possible to dislike someone's writings for non-political reasons. And it's also possible for politics to infect how we view the writings. It's not always clear what the agenda is of the critic. But let's not end there. Let's end with an extended passage from Emerson, the sage of Concord, the inescapable American. Ms. Jack Wilson would advocate for the passage on the transparent eyeball, the notorious passage, as Harold Bloom called it, which inspired her, but also made her giggle, especially when you'd see those cartoons. (laughs) Those cartoons of the transparent eyeball. Let's do this one instead. This is also from Nature, first published in 1836. So shall we come to look at the world with new eyes? It shall answer the endless inquiry of the intellect. What is truth? And of the affections, what is good? By yielding itself passive to the educated will. Then shall come to pass what my poet said, quote, Nature is not fixed but fluid. Spirit alters, molds, makes it. The immobility or bruteness of nature is the absence of spirit. To pure spirit, it is fluid, it is volatile, it is obedient. Every spirit builds itself a house, and beyond its house a world, and beyond its world a heaven. Know then that the world exists for you, for you is the phenomenon perfect. What we are, that only can we see. All that Adam had, all that Caesar could, you have and can do. Adam called his house heaven and earth. Caesar called his house Rome. You perhaps call yours a cobbler's trade, a hundred acres of plowed land, or a scholar's garret. Yet line for line and point for point, your dominion is as great as theirs, though without fine names. Build, therefore, your own world. As fast as you conform your life to the pure idea in your mind, that will unfold its great proportions. 
A correspondent revolution in things will attend the influx of the spirit. So fast will disagreeable appearances, swine, spiders, snakes, pests, madhouses, prisons, enemies vanish. They are temporary and shall be no more seen. The sordor and filths of nature, the sun shall dry up and the wind exhale. As when the summer comes from the south, the snowbanks melt, and the face of the earth becomes green before it. As shall the advancing spirit create its ornaments along the path, and carry with it the beauty it visits, and the song which enchants it. It shall draw beautiful faces, warm hearts, wise discourse, and heroic acts around its way, until evil is no more seen. The kingdom of man over nature, which cometh not with observation, a dominion such as now is beyond his dream of God. He shall enter without more wonder than the blind man feels, who is gradually restored to perfect sight. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Ralph Waldo Emerson for giving us these works and to Angela, the fiancé, for requesting it as a topic. You can find more about the History of Literature at historyofliterature.com or by checking us out on facebook.com slash historyofliterature. And you can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, which used to be called iTunes. Yes, That's the icon on your phone, the purple one for you Apple users, or on Stitcher, or wherever else you get your favorite podcasts. Please be sure to subscribe, and while you're there, leave us a five-star review. Oh, I almost forgot. Patreon offers you a way to support the show for just a dollar a month, or five, or whatever you can spare. A buck a show, maybe? That's patreon.com slash literature. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash literature. My thanks to everyone who has signed up to be a Patreon. I truly do appreciate it, and it truly does help. We'll have Alice Monroe coming up soon and some more special guests. Another chapter to the Oscar Wilde mystery. This one might surprise you. And much, much more. Hope you're enjoying September, and we're almost at my favorite month, October, and our Halloween episode... So set your calendars now. Those are always a big deal here at the History of Literature. We'll try to do something special for you this time, too. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>